0: Um, today's reading um, is Matthew chapter twenty-two, verses fifteen to twenty-two. It's on page six of the bulletin. If you'd like to follow along, then the Pharisees went out and built and laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent his disciples him to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, he said, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity. And that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius. And he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, so give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. What they heard, when they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and went away.
1: continuing today in our study of the gospel of Matthew and I just want to remind you if you may not know we do not have service here uh, next weekend Um, we are going to be away for the retreat and so we will not have our regular worship service I'm very sorry if uh, if that catches you off guard we'll miss you Um, if you're not with us on the retreat we hope that you will be Uh, But we won't have service here, so please don't come here. You're welcome to join either Grace Mosaic or Grace Downtown for their worship services, either in the morning or the evening. Uh, But we'll continue on after that, uh, finishing up the Gospel of Matthew for a couple of more weeks before we head into the Christmas season. Uh, So let's take one more look today at this passage from Matthew. Let's say a word of prayer first. Lord, we pray for your help. We thank you in advance for the help you will give. Uh, We pray that you would open our hearts, our minds, uh, you would open our lives to you. Uh, We want to see you, we want to follow you, we want to know you, we want to grow in wisdom, we want our lives to be changed. Come do all of that and more. Send your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Recent events have produced a lot of drama across our nation angst and hand-wringing for some, uh, cheering and chest-thumping for others. We are collectively overcome with a responsibility for history, as well as a sense of history being made right before our very eyes. And now we carry in our hearts uh, sort of an anxious feeling, I don't know about you, that the development of the coming weeks, whatever the outcome, really could affect the social fabric of our nation. I'm talking, of course, uh, about the Chicago Cubs making it to the World Series uh, for the first time in 71 years. Right? Uh, natives of the Windy City among us, congratulations. Um, Come on, man. We're about to talk about Jesus and politics. We better warm up with a little laughter, huh? All right? Okay, here's what I want to do. We'll we'll try to keep it fairly simple. I want to leave ample time today for Q&A. We always have a time of question and answer after the teaching and want to make sure that we have time for that little bit of discussion. But what I like to do is to sort of unpack this passage a little bit, try to do it briefly, and start by drawing out a few important principles for faith and politics as we see it modeled and taught in the person of Jesus. Shall we do that? First a couple of principles, and then we'll discuss further. We'll dive right in. Number one, principle number one, I think that we find in this passage, is that political power is seductive. Political power is seductive. You see in verse 15 right from the top, then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him, that's Jesus, in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Who are these characters? The Pharisees, the Herodians, others. The Pharisees, you may or may not know, were the strictest sect of ancient Judaism. They were quite concerned with ethical purity and adherence to God's moral law. They were also quite upset with Jesus' popularity. He was a threat to them, and at this point in Matthew's Gospel... They were starting to conspire to off him. The Pharisees and the Herodians couldn't stand each other. In fact, they were political enemies. But as they say, a common enemy makes strange bedfellows. The Pharisees and Herodians on this day were united in their shared opposition to Jesus. Who are the Herodians? Uh, Keep in mind that the Jewish people at this time in history were under Roman occupation. Most Jews were always lobbying for liberation, longing for the day of freedom. Which is a complicated goal, of course, when you're talking about being under the tyranny of the greatest economic and military power of the world, the Roman Empire. There were even among them revolutionaries who were called zealots, because they were zealous for their freedom, and they took it to the next level. When they weren't leading bloody rebellions against Rome, they were at least making a point to generate movements of resistance against Roman law and Roman culture every chance they got. As one commentator put it, to them, paying the imperial tax was the most obvious sign of submission to Rome, a god dishonoring badge of slavery the pagans. And of course, on the other side of the political spectrum, there were Jews who felt it was best to work with Rome rather than against Rome. The Herodians were supporters of the Herod family, a family that was installed by the Roman Empire as sort of Jewish puppet kings locally. Uh, they believed that it was your political, moral, and religious duty to submit to Rome. They wanted to play it safe, to play it quiet, to play it peaceful. And so they sympathized with Rome and its policies and promoted Roman social customs and got some material rewards in return, which was why the Pharisees viewed them as power-grabbing and money-grubbing, and they were. So why are the Pharisees today conspiring with the Herodians? Because of power. The Pharisees themselves were threatened by Jesus' ministry. He publicly exposed their hypocrisy again and again and again. He preached that their holy deeds were a farce, intended for the eyes of other people or the reflection in the mirror, But certainly not truly intended for God. Because Jesus taught that's not how God operated. Easily bribed by good moral deeds. God was a God of grace. A God who knew that every good deed that we offered up to him, it could never add up. It could never win his favor. It could never be enough according to his perfect standards of love and justice that he requires us to fulfill. That the only way for us to be right with God is by grace, by a gift, by God's unmerited favor given to us through Jesus himself. This, Jesus said, was good news to all who could declare themselves hopeless and unworthy and weak and powerless and just simply thankful that a Savior could come, that they would give up saving themselves, this grand human project. This was good news, but not to those who wanted to insist on saving themselves. Not to those who wanted to impress those around and Not to those who insist on being God of their own lives, managing control over their own circumstances, even people around them. These were the Pharisees. Jesus, to them, was bad news. He threatened their social status, their reputation. He undermined their religious power. And so here they are sticking close to political power in the form of the Herodians. It was the only way to get what they really wanted, and that's a dead Jesus, which could only be carried out legally by the Roman state. So they stayed close to those who were in the inner circle of power. It's an ancient story and an ancient scenario, but it rings all too familiar, doesn't it? The Pharisees are an example of those who choose to expedite their religious ends through worldly political means. And all in the name of strategy. But as Christian author Andy Crouch recently wrote, there is a point at which strategy becomes its own form of idolatry an attempt to manipulate the levers of history in favor of the causes we support. Political strategy becomes idolatry for ancient Israel and for us today, Crouch writes, when we make alliances with those who seem to offer strength, the chariots of Egypt, the vassal kings of Rome, at the expense of our dependence on God. Political strategy becomes idolatry when we betray our deepest values in pursuit of earthly influence. Which is seductive indeed. Power is seductive, isn't it? Which is why here it's so important to notice how different Jesus was. The way in which he handled power and the way in which he Kept a distance from it. Even the Pharisees and Herodians who approached him that day made note of it. In verse 16, teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity. And that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You're a man of integrity. Oh, 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 that our enemies would testify to that about us. They continue, you aren't swayed by others. Because you pay no attention to who they are. Jesus was never seduced by power like we so often are. Are you? Are we? Jesus was not willing to compromise himself in order to gain further worldly authority. Indeed, he was the one that said and taught what good does it do for a man to gain the whole world of influence, of power, of even ministry, of effective world change, and yet forfeit his soul? What are you willing to give up for the sake of influence, for the sake of winning? And the way that Jesus exercised power was so different, wasn't it? You know, you might have missed it. But later in the story, Jesus says in verse 19, as he's trying to illustrate his point, he says, show me the coin used for paying the tax. And we're told they brought him a denarius. Now, for a second, notice the obvious. Jesus was asking for a coin because he didn't have one of his own. As one commentator noted that he had to ask may reflect his own poverty. Jesus was a savior. Jesus was a Messiah who came not as one of the powerful, but who came as one of the poor. The one who established his kingdom through weakness, even through defeat. What kind of king is this? In fact, as you know, the story fast forwarding, in fact, the Pharisees and the Herodians, they got their wish, humanly speaking, The death of this one Christ. And yet it was always in God's purposes, you see, that Jesus, who would would die as the mediator between God and man, dying as our substitute, dying in our place, taking the punishment for all the power grabbing that you and I are so obsessed with. That he would set us free, not just forgive us, but change us. Not just forgive us, but to turn our hearts upside down that we might be people that lay down power. That relinquish privilege for the sake of serving those around us. To be people who aren't afraid of weakness, first and foremost, because we know that the way up is the way down. Because that's the way of the cross, you see the height of Jesus's exercise of divine power was found in his death. And there's no greater power than that, this death that purchased the salvation of the whole world, his death that sets you free, not from Roman tyranny, not immediately, but the tyranny of sin and death and the devil. Do you want power like that? Do you want power like him? First thing to notice, the seductive power of politics. Political power is seductive. Number two, second thing to notice here, Jesus does not fit neatly into political categories or parties, and neither should you or me. Jesus doesn't fit neatly into political categories and parties, and neither should we. You follow the story, right? The Pharisees and the Herodians that are conspiring together, and they've set up a trap. Uh, They're trying to trip up Jesus. They're trying to put him in a position of trouble. Verse 17, tell us your opinion, they say. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? You see, the Herodians, who again, though Jewish, were sympathizers of Caesar, would love to catch a teacher telling his followers to refuse to pay their taxes to Caesar. In which case, of course, they can jump on him, jail him, or execute him as a traitor or an insurrectionist. The Pharisees, for their part, would love to catch Jesus publicly teaching people to pay the imperial tax to whom they're oppressors thereby threatening his popularity amongst the people who daily raged against such tyranny. They try to put him in a lose-lose position, the position of either alienating a large part of the Jewish population, sinking Jesus' ministry, or laying him open to charges of treason against Rome. And so the question, of course, was, well, Jesus, which one is it, this or that, to pay or not to pay? What party do you belong to, Jesus? What's the right way? Where do you fit? Where do you belong? They want him to say, don't pay the imperial tax, down with Caesar, down with Rome, or pay the tax, bow to Caesar. Instead, this is what Jesus says in effect. Pay the tax, bow to God. Give the money to Caesar, but give your loyalty to me. We'll unpack that a little bit more because there are even additional layers to how he puts it there when he says, Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. But you notice the people's response, right? In verse 22, when they heard this, we're told they were amazed. They were amazed. They heard how he had answered. Not just either or, and not even both and, but something different altogether. Because Jesus' politics, the ways of his kingdom, always takes us to a third way. A way that's out of this world that defies categories. Sure, that might resonate with certain schools of thought and ideologies and party platforms. Might resonate with certain values of this world, but we'll always defy the framing of this world as well. He refused simplistic yes or no political dichotomies. And so we're able to say, with some practical application here, that in light of our nation, which has, of course, more than two parties, but generally acts as, operates as a two party system of government, that we can say, according to these principles here, that God is not a Republican. God is not a Democrat. That a faithful Christian can be a Democrat. A faithful Christian can be a Republican. That Jesus was neither a pure conservative nor a pure progressive. He was both and neither at the same time. In fact, oftentimes, his politics and values were more conservative than the most conservative conservative. And more radical than the most progressive of progressives as well. You see, because Jesus told us the key to getting it that we haven't heard it he said my kingdom my kingdom is not of this world so why should we be surprised when he doesn't fit the categories and definitions of this world why should we be surprised when he doesn't just sign off on a whole party single platform?" Why should we be surprised when someone that really follows Jesus might be a person that sort of confounds people, keeps them guessing? You don't seem to fit. Where do you fit? And the answer can be, well, my Savior didn't fit either. And I'm just following him. And so the invitation, of course, is for Christians to be among the most thoughtful people, not just simply going along with the crowd. Not simply parodying the language of a certain political tribe. But following the king whose kingdom transects and transcends human political parties. Which of course means that if we're following Jesus, then we should always have the capacity to be able to critique our party. In saying all that I'm saying and saying what I think this word is saying, it doesn't mean that one can't affiliate politically. But I think it does imply that one should always do so with an open hand. Able to critique, able to see where there might be misalignment between the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of Christ. Pieces maybe that are left over from your bucket of Christian convictions of how God intends this world to be and how it ought to operate, that leftover pieces that haven't fit in your party's puzzle, or maybe too many pieces that have been squeezed in that maybe need to be removed. The Christian should be marked by an ability to critique, Uh, that you should always be able to reject overly simplistic formulations of needs, social issues, and policy. In fact, you should always make someone from your own tribe mad once in a while. Have you done that lately? They're just irked because you're not just getting on board. Jesus points us to a third way, a politics that expresses in this world, but whose source is out of this world. In fact, its very source is the heart of God. People should be amazed at your politics. People should be confounded by it. I wonder if part of the reason why the church too often loses its winsome attractiveness to the world is because the church just finds itself parroting the world. There's nothing to distinguish it. There's nothing new. There's nothing that resonates differently. There's nothing but what's already out there. And if you're just doing what's already out there, oftentimes the world does it better than the church. But oh, for a Christian witness that actually testifies to the coming kingdom of Christ, one that keeps people's heads turning, Do you turn people's heads? Jesus doesn't fit easily, neatly, tidily in political party or categories, and neither should we. Number three, give to Caesar. Number four, withhold from Caesar. We'll take these together, and then we're done. We'll talk. Number three, give to Caesar. Number four, withhold from Caesar. Jesus says, again, verse 21, so give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God What is God's? This is an invitation to participate in this world's politics, yes, as an expression of one way in which God actually brings transformation in this world. That our commitment to the kingdom of God, which includes our commitment to the love of neighbor, should draw us into participation in common life. Oh, there's so many people who chalk up as spirituality their disengagement from the world when really what it is, is selfishness. Self-centeredness, self-preservation, rather than the self-sacrificial love of neighbor that calls you to get into the fray and to get messy for the cause of something that's greater than yourself. Jesus doesn't allow us to sit on the sidelines. He calls us to engage, to participate, and even to give. To be an operating citizen, responsibly giving. Yes, here even in the form of taxes. Several points throughout scripture, we're reminded that government has been ordained by God and therefore should be honored. In fact, 1 Peter says to the very Christians that were being persecuted by the state, the most astounding command, one of the most astounding in the entire Bible, honor the emperor. Honor Caesar. And in Romans 13, uh, submit to the governing authorities as they've been ordained by God himself. Of course, there's more to say about the topic there, but there's a call to engagement, and yet there's also a call, not just to give, but also to withhold. There's a call to participate, but there's a call not to simply get to get lost in it, but rather to withhold. Commentators have noted. That Jesus uses an interesting word here when he says, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's. The old King James translation used to read, does read, render to Caesar what is Caesar's. Our translation says, give back to Caesar. If you look at the word that's behind that being translated there, it means to pay what is due. To discharge a debt, to give recompense. In a good or a bad sense. That's what my word dictionary told me. To give recompense in a good or a bad sense. And so you hear it, right? It does mean, sure, give your taxes, pay your dues, but it also means give Caesar what he is due when he operates in injustice, when he afflicts evil. Not just give yourself wholly to Caesar without critique, but rather critique. Because what is a megalomaniac emperor owed? What is the debt that is discharged to him? Do you see? Because we must give this leader, this government, what it is due. But we must also not give what it is not due. And the most important thing that it is not due, that must be withheld, is the deepest place of loyalty in the inner recesses of the heart. You see, Jesus called forward this coin because he wanted to illustrate to them this principle of obligation. And as he asked for a denarius and he held it up to them, and this is a coin that probably represented about a day's wage for the average worker. But based on archaeological evidence... That coin would have had an image of the emperor's head, in this case, Tiberius Caesar. And it also would have had an inscription that would have read this, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus, on one side. And then on the other side, Pontifex Maximus, which can be translated high priest, on the other side. You see, because Jesus knew and all the Christians knew and even Rome knew that there absolutely was a claim to divinity and divine authority. Implied in the kind of allegiance that was required of those in Rome. That by paying taxes and by giving oneself to the state that you weren't just giving your money, you were giving you. And some things haven't changed, have they? The way in which political processes and institutions and leaders can ask for far more than simply a vote or far more than simply money and far more than simply time and energy, but your very heart, your very life, your very soul. Jesus is saying, give, but don't give all the way. Serve, but don't serve all the way. Give your money, but not your loyalty. Reserve that for God alone. You see, it's a warning, of course, a call to be, aware, to be wary of the dangers of political idolatry. In the form of even worship of a given leader, a policy, a state, a party. And one says, well, that just sounds so crass and so extreme. Who in the world actually does that? Well, I told you, Hugh, oftentimes it's the church. Oftentimes it's Christians that are lined up to do it first and foremost in the name of God, in the name of Christ, in the name of the kingdom of God. And yet, dear friends, What God is calling us to hear, what Jesus calls us to hear, is a recognition that God absolutely uses government. God absolutely uses leaders, even flawed ones. God absolutely uses policy, even flawed policy. But our hope is not Caesar. Our hope is not the law. Our hope is Christ. And he alone deserves our deepest allegiance. He alone deserves our greatest love, and as long as that's the case, that we are called to be dutiful and yet also critical of the state. As the apostles testified in Acts 5, 29, we must obey God rather than man. After all, government is an institution of God, and yet it was never called to solve Everything. One of the problems here is when we turn to politics and policy as the only way of dealing with injustice and social change. Again, it has its place. God has ordained government. But one of the problems we see on both the left and the right is Christians putting far too much hope in government to do what God intended the church and everyday ordinary Christians to do in love and service of neighbor. This is not an argument for so-called small government. This is an argument for the church to start being the church. Which is why as important as your duty or responsibility to vote might be, if you are a citizen of this country or whatever country you might be a citizen of, just as important, nay, even more important than that duty, If your aspiration is to see the coming of the kingdom of God, to see this neighborhood transformed, to be a clear image of all that makes God's heart tick. In justice and love and neighborliness, in dignity and respect, in the lifting up of the poor, in the protection of the vulnerable. Of the harmony of people that have many deep, deep differences. If your heart ticks for that, then the greatest place where you need to be working out your duty and obligation before God is as a Christian neighbor and as a member of a local church and as a person in strategic partnerships, yes, through government institutions, but also beyond government institutions, through local commerce and businesses and neighborhood associations and different groupings of people who side by side together are seeking the kingdom of God. This is what God has Called us to. Has drawn us into. This is what Jesus gives us just a little glimpse. One passing conversation. Where he calls us to give and to withhold. Where he calls us to serve and to love neighbor. Where he calls us to a third way. To a series of values and priorities that are out of this world. That find expression in this world, yes. But that cut across, transect and transcend existing categories of politics and policy. All the while being people who are not seduced by the allure of political power and influence because our hearts have been absolutely enraptured by the love of Christ, and it's him and him alone to whom we have given our deepest loyalty. Is this the kind of active, engaged Citizen of the kingdom of heaven and citizen of this place here on earth that you long to be. This is what Jesus calls us to. Let's talk about it some more. Let's pray. Christ, we ask that you would come and give us wisdom, that you would fill out all the details now. That you would make us faithful in uh, following in your steps and being people that have been transformed by your blood, your sacrifice, your cross, your power. So, Jesus, we're coming to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and let's sing.